Hello and a warm welcome to this edition of the Script Podcast. I am Vibha Ravi, Senior Editor with Sightline, and I'm having a conversation today with Thomas Radmacher, CEO and Chief Scientific Officer at Emergix Vaccines. Emergix aims to tackle pandemics with synthetic vaccines, and it's developing multiple candidates, including once against dengue and influenza. Using 100% synthetic components, the candidates are designed to activate T cells, which will help the immune system destroy virus-infected cells. So that's how the vaccines are supposed to work. Now about the man himself an emeritus professor of molecular medicine at University College London, UCL, and a serial entrepreneur, Professor Rademacher is among the early biotech founders. In 2000, he co-founded the first nanomedicine company, Medatech Limited, which went on to be listed on NASDAQ. He holds 50 patents, of which 19 are in nanomedicine. So, hi, Thomas. Welcome Hello. to this podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Biotech companies are reporting a shortage of funding as VCs and other investors shrink their horizons to focus on existing investments. Emergix recently announced a collaboration and early investment from Brazil's IBMP for phase two and three clinical trials of dengue and beta coronavirus candidates. What does this mean for Emergix and what are your future funding plans? Well, First of all, it was a tremendous vote of confidence in in our technology. The deal um, with Brazil is, in many ways, it's not just Brazil, it's, it's the Latinx countries there. And it's to develop basically a whole pipeline of, of vaccines for infectious diseases, which are obviously uh, important in, in, in that region of the world. And I think we're seeing coming out of the, the COVID era, more the concept that um, governments, countries, regions don't want to be left hanging on access to vaccines, etc., which are in the hands of a small number of uh, pharmaceutical companies. Therefore, they want to very early on be able to be self-sufficient or have a large amount of content in any vaccine locally uh, produced. So part of our commercialization is, of course, is to really to join forces with governments to provide them with the vaccines they uh, may need at this time or in terms of what's called preparedness. So that's basically become our our, our business model uh, and we fit very nicely into that because in order to have that model, obviously you have to be able to produce vaccines at a reasonable and cheap price because a lot of these will be put in uh, repositories or stockpiled until they're needed. And obviously governments can't afford to be paying hundreds of dollars for a vaccine that then sits around and basically they have to throw away when its shelf life comes. So the fact that we can produce vaccines at a cost and uh, which allows them to be put in repositories obviously comes to the type of vaccines that we make. Once you get away from making vaccines that require uh, cell culture or any type of bacterial fermentation, or, and you can make a vaccine purely using synthetic chemistry, of course, your manufacturing costs come down to a couple of reactors and a very, very small porter cabin to make uh, you know millions and millions of doses versus a building. So I think this is the way it's going. And 
and we are extending the Brazil uh, regional concept. We are in discussions with other regional entities around the world uh, to produce vaccines that they will have an interest in also. And the basics of this is, is that we will uh, allow them for example, uh, future, say, manufacturing and distribution rights so they can become self-sufficient in the long term. And in exchange, they take a risk type of stake in the company it, it, itself. So if the company is very, very successful, uh, they also get a, you know, potentially a return on that investment in addition to the the way they can approach public health. So it's a very unique market that we can tap into because of the characteristics of the vaccines that we're making and the cost savings involved in making a 100% synthetic uh, entity. This is an interesting model of democratization of access to vaccines. So is this model being extended to other countries as well within Latin America, as you spoke about, and in other countries? Say, for example, you know, Africa has been one country where a lot of focus has gone in after COVID, given the kind of deficient supplies they had of COVID vaccines. So- yeah, the Brazil uh, deal encompasses, uh, as I mentioned, the Latinx countries, except Mexico, which is part of part of a different uh, block. Uh, yes, we are in currently in discussions with the uh, other parts of the world. It includes obviously the Middle East and Africa for exactly these type of arrangements. We are also in discussion with supplying of vaccines to uh, the international NGOs, such as the WHO and, and, and these type of entities. So we're really looking at our main commercialization is basically as governments, uh, government markets, etc. Right. I just want to speak to you a little bit about the technology here. So mRNA, you know, which has been long in the making, emerged as a promising technology post-COVID. So how do you think Emergix's synthetic technology will prove its superiority against such new technologies? So the impetus for Emergix technology really goes back to around 2014 when we were approached at the time of the first Ebola outbreak. Uh, And we were approached, uh, and I was still associated with the University College London at that time. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And this thing could, of course, the Ebola could have got completely out of hand. It could have spread. Of course, in the end, as you know, the the, um, uh, public health interventions, the sealing of the borders reduced the impact of the initial Ebola. But there was something that came out of that, because even with um, the technologies that existed at that time, which were a lot of the recombinant viral vectors, etc., it still took, you know, the big guys a year, year and a half to even produce something that could go into even an early phase, uh, early safety trial. What happened then is, of course, is there was no more Ebola around. So you've got the interesting problem then is, is if you've got the vaccine you've made, but you can't actually test it. Because you basically got to wait for another end epidemic to appear before you can actually find out it worked. And so this led to the interesting concept of that you got to have the vaccines for these really world nasties. Yes, you have to have them ready to be rolled out at the time of the ap- of an epidemic. Same thing with Zika. Uh, the second is that these viruses that we're dealing with are the real nasties are what are called RNA viruses. They're not the DNA viruses like uh, CMV or Epstein-Barr or HPV, whatever it is. These are Ebola, uh, flu, dengue, 
chikungunya, COVID, all, all of the world nasties that you can think of actually are RNA viruses. And then you have to ask, in the history of uh, immunology and virology, what has been able to deal with these viruses? And the only thing that has ever been shown to be successful is the live attenuated vaccines. So you've got a yellow fever vaccine, polio vaccine, measles, mumps, all of these things. These are live attenuated vaccines. And so then you have to say, why did these live attenuated vaccines, why were they successful? And that came out only probably in the last five or 10 years ago when we started to understand how a live attenuated vaccine worked. And I'm moving myself to why our technology is the way to go in the future or is probably the only way. So then you say, well, what's unique about an RNA virus? Well, an RNA virus is a very, very simple creature. Yeah, most people forget dengue, I think, is only eight proteins. Flu is what, um, eight, eight segments and about 10 proteins, whatever it is. They're very, very simple. They contain very, very little information. In contrast, a DNA virus, like a pox virus, is huge. It contains hundreds of different proteins. It's pretty much self-sufficient, if you want to look at it that way. So you then say, well, how do our RNA viruses do it with a very small amount of genetic information, uh, whereas the big DNAs have got to do that? Well, they do it rather interesting. Uh, an RNA virus cannot replicate itself without error. It's impossible. Every single position, because there's no correction mechanism in the cell for RNA. There is for DNA, obviously, we wouldn't survive very long. But for RNA, there's a certain probability at every single position that an error can happen. So an RNA virus cannot make a copy of itself without making an error. Therefore, there is really no such thing as the Wuhan virus, because it is a collection of what are called quasi-species. So RNA viruses exist as clouds. They don't exist as single entities. And what's in the literature when we say the Wuhan virus is a mathematical construct. It's a summary of all of the subspecies in which they add them up and the most relevant position is listed. And that's what it appears in the publications and whatever it is. But it's a mathematical construct that does not exist. Now, this cloud of viruses all work together. So in other words, they're cooperative. So that's how they get around having very little information in a single one. They make lots of these things and they work together. So then you say, well, you know, how is the immune system going to deal with this? Because if each virion coming out, say, in COVID-19 is actually different, that's a problem. Because you don't got one viral infection, you've got a hundred or a million. So the immune system learned to deal with this by recognizing the infected cell. So say COVID-19 or SARS-2 or flu goes inside of a cell. From the moment it gets inside that cell, that cell is targeted as being an infected cell. And that's the factory. And that factory, of course, makes all the various species. So you got to kill the factory. Once the virus gets out, you got a problem. So the human immune system learned to deal with these viruses by generating cellular immunity. And cellular immunity, therefore, is a process in which we kill the infected cell. Cellular immunity never looks at the virus, couldn't care less about the virus. All it does is it recognizes there is an infected cell there and the T cells, which recognize this, come in and kill it.
So what the great live attenuated vaccines succeeded in doing is priming your immune system with a whole army of T-cells. And so what happens is, is, of course, you then catch yellow fever and you got all these T-cells all waiting there. And they say, ah, uh, this mosquito just bit me in the skin. It's infected me. There's some yellow fever. There's a signal that appears on that cell from the yellow fever. The T-cells come in and they kill it. And if they kill it, in the first 18 hours, it's what's called an abortive infection. And what I mean by that is from the time a cell is infected to the time it produces more of its progeny or more virions, it's about 18 hours. You've you got to build all the bricks. And then you've got to assemble the virus. So for the first 18 to 24 hours, that cell that's been infected is absolutely susceptible. And if you kill it, you have what's called an abortive infection. You were infected, but it didn't produce any progeny. And that blocks transmission. And that is how the live attenuated vaccines work. They generate a T-cell army, which is there prior to the infection. Now, if you don't have that army, what happens? Well, you get infected and it takes you about six, seven, eight days to generate your T-cell army. So if I caught uh, SARS-2 tomorrow, it's a race between this, um, these quasi-species building up and getting to the point that they're going to flow out into my bloodstream and the T-cells. So there's a race in time. And if you, your T-cells get in there, then you've won the race. If you don't win the race, obviously, then you can become symptomatic and ill. So the fundamental principle of, therefore, of all vaccinology in relation to RNA viruses, which are the majority of the things we have to deal with, is to have prior T cells ready to attack an infected cell. That is what our vaccines do. So we know the information required to generate a T cell army against flu. We know the information in a T cell army against dengue or Zika or chikungunya. So we can that into somebody. And they'll generate that T-cell army. And it'll just sit there. It's ready to go if you ever then get infected. Because immunity, importantly, is always related to the site of infection, point of entry. So if you want to fight dengue, you got to have T-cells which attack dengue in the skin. If you want to attack flu, you want to attack them in the bronchioles before it actually gets into the lungs. And that's the beauty of the T-cell system. If you know how to vaccinate correctly, you generate these um, what are called tissue resident armies. Having them in the blood doesn't help. In other words, when people measure, they say, I've got lots of T-cells in my blood against X or Y. It's meaningless. Only 1% of the T-cells in your, in your body are in your blood. 99% of them are in the tissues. And there's thought to be one T-cell for something like every eight or 10 you, other cells around. So we are basically a gigantic bag of T-cells all waiting there at the right spot. And the easiest way to explain that is, is that if I would breathe in flu and it would, if it would get into my lungs and then the T-cells would move from my blood into the lungs, that's too late. Now, the mRNA vaccines, what do they do? They generate a antibody response to spike. And there is no connection between that and actual immunity to a viral infection. Now, antibody-based vaccines are very useful. They say, oh, they're wonderful. Which are the wonderful ones there are? Tetanus vaccine, diphtheria vaccine. 
But they're not to diphtheria or tetanus. They're to the tetanus toxin or the diphtheria toxin. So basically, they're like anti-snake venoms. So they neutralize a toxin produced by the bacteria. So antibodies can play an important role if a component of a bacteria or a virus has toxic activity. And we know, for example, in COVID-19, that the spike protein itself was a toxin. So a lot of the efficacy in that particular case was probably secondary to um, antitoxin activity. And that is reducing a disease component of SARS-2, but it's not doing anything against SARS-2 directly. The other important aspect about antibody-based vaccines is they're there for those very unusual events when you get a viremia. Viruses can't move around in the body. They're too big. The smallest virus is about 50 to 60 nanometers in size. That gets under my skin. It can't go anywhere. I've got a collagen network in my skin. I got lymphatic flaps. And even if it got into my lymphatics and my blood vessel, the pores in my blood vessel are about eight nanometers big. So they do it by hitching rides inside of cells. So most viruses never have a extracellular life. When dengue, a mosquito infects you, the mosquito spits into your skin wonderfully. It creates mosquito saliva. And that mosquito saliva actually recruits a type of cell called a myeloid cell. And that myeloid cell, it would be the, actually the cell that would be infected by the dengue virus if that mosquito happened to have uh, a dengue. And it gets into that, and then it hitches a ride inside of that cell, because obviously cells know how to move around the body. They squeeze like under doors, and you know, like the, like the old science fiction things, but they can move around. And so viruses move around from cell to cell or in cells. So they really don't have what's called an extracellular life in normal circumstances under a normal in infection. Now, an antibody can only act on an intact virus if it's free in solution. And I know, for example, no report in the entire literature, I might be wrong, but I haven't seen it, where people have picked up, for example, SARS-2 floating around in your bloodstream. That's why you never hear about people measuring um, viruses in the people's blood, whatever it is. They do it in your nose and things like that. And there they're looking at something different, PCR, but they're not looking actually at free viruses. Now, occasionally, when an infection gets out of hand, you do get viremia. If you're really immunosuppressed and things, if your T-cell system is completely flopped and failed, then the antibodies can come in and they glue themselves to the surface of the viruses and they make them big and chunky and they get cleared out by your spleen. So they will prevent, for example, septicemia and meningitis and things like that. But in terms of general protection in vaccinology for the vast, vast majority of 99.999% of the population, your entire protection in a and, and all of these viruses is via the T-cell immune system. And what we do is, far as I am aware, uh, the only technology that can achieve the priming of the T-cells uh, in a very specific way to basically mimic live attenuated vaccines. So I think we have, someone said to me once, this is all too good to be true. I says, no, it's not. This is immunology 101. This is what every immunologist would tell you. This is how you treat flu. You don't treat flu with an antibody or a monoclonal. You, that's, just, that's a nonsense. 
Thomas, so, so that was a very fascinating walkthrough in the epidemiology and the description of vaccine action. As you just described, a universal flu vaccine has proved to be elusive so far, with the viruses being moving targets. So how do Emergex's T-cell priming set point candidates account for coverage of existing and future variants in their design? In other words, what's the plan to counter antigenic shift and drift? So you're talking about serotype shifts. You're talking about H1N1 going to H2N3, going to H3N2, whatever it is. That's the surface. The inside is the same. So flu is flu. As far as the T-cell system is concerned, there is no H2N3. There is no whatever it is. That is the, the hemagglutin and the neurometadase on the surface. That is where the biology is very clear and the, the vaccine development over the years has gone a little bit astray. So like everything else, for example, when we make our dengue vaccine, people say, well, there's dengue one, two, three, and four. I says, no, there's not. There's dengue one, two, three, and four in terms of something on the cell surface, but inside it's still dengue. That's why we call it dengue. And inside of flu, whether you've got nine, we've, we have studied this all the way back to the you know Spanish flu. We've analyzed um, over a hundred and some years. We've looked at all of these flu strains and the T cell response. It doesn't see strains. So I think the answer here is that nobody got around to making a live attenuated flu vaccine. If we had made a live attenuated flu vaccine, we'd have something similar to polio or measles. But if you made one, it would function like measles or polio and you wouldn't have the, the issues that we have you know, today. So to us, it's not an issue. T cells recognize families of viruses. So making a universal flu vaccine is inherent in what we do and part of the process. So have any of your core programs been delayed by COVID? And if not, or even if yes, what's the status of your lead programs? Yeah, they, the core programs were delayed by COVID because we were in the middle of beginning our first in human clinical trials. And we also had to manufacture vaccines and in the process of doing this, a lot of the outsourcing, for example, the fill and finish uh, firms, etc., got completely and utterly bought up by the large pharmas trying to make very large amounts of the COVID vaccine. So we were bumped a number of times on our slots for the actual uh, putting it actually in, into vials, for example. Um, we were simply told, eh, there's a national emergency and we got to get somebody else your slot. So we got delayed uh, pretty much a full year due to this world demand all of a sudden for um, fill and finish and other components. And there was even at one time, there was a pipette shortage, I have to say, the vial shortage. I mean, there was, there was global shortages on all of the components for doing this. We were fortunate enough, we did get our clinical trials away eventually, but they were delayed about nine months to a year because of COVID. I believe your earlier business model was based on taking vaccine candidates to phase 1A studies, after which you would sell the vaccines for repositories or to other companies for testing in larger pivotal studies. Based on what you told me just now regarding the model, has your model changed in any manner? Our model is changed in the sense that the idea was to do this on a preparedness basis. On the other hand, what has come clear is, for example, with dengue, 
is when we started out, everybody told us don't go into dengue because uh, dengvaxia from Sanofi was that was it. It had been done. Now, we knew looking at that, there was a very high probability that that would not. Uh, I never thought it would get licensed again. It got licensed. And then, as you know, there were issues. Uh, and then came along the Takeda one, which you probably saw has now been refused um, regulatory approval by the FDA. So dengue is a global problem. It's thought that half the population of the earth are potentially exposed uh, to dengue. And there's actually now nothing out there. So that is why we have moved forward with our dengue out of this repository mode. Now with flu, the reason we're moving ahead really with flu is that our flu vaccine, what I mentioned to you, is cross-reactive with um, the other human isolates. Well, actual fact is, quote-unquote, influenza, if you want to look at it, they also occurs like an avian flu. That's just another subtype. That's H5N1 or whatever it is, H5N7. So, we looked, and of course, our vaccine should cover avian or bird flu. So it actually indirectly is a preparedness vaccine in the sense that none of the current vaccines out there will cover bird flu. So ours is designed at this point in time to cover all of the pandemic strains that occurred in the past. And, and as you know, pandemics come on about 50-year cycles. The last one was in 2009, so we can argue when the next one is coming. So the the current vaccine we've got is a, is will cover all current circulating strains. It will cover all of the previous past pandemic strains uh, going all the way back to 1918, and it will cover uh, avian, uh, avian flu. So it's sort of a mixture of repository. We can use it now. It may could be used side by side with the current flu vaccines because people obviously like to get those every year and, and it's hard changing uh, public perception on vaccines. So, but I think the whole repository model has returned more from countries wanting to have independence and they're willing to stockpile. Our SARS vaccine is actually against SARS-1 and 2. So if SARS-1 comes back, you know, this vaccine will cover that universal beta-corona thing. Because, again, it's going after the common components of a, of a beta-coronavirus. It has nothing to do with the difference in spike between SARS-1 and SARS-2. For example, the internal genetics of SARS-1 and SARS-2 are 98.6% identical. I mean, so effectively, it's only the surfaces that were, that were different. Okay, so moving on to the technology side, I'm aware that Emergix had collaborated with Zosano Pharma for its transdermal patch delivery system. Given that intranasal vaccines are gaining in popularity, is there any scope to use this mode of delivery for your vaccines? Yeah, there is. In order to generate resident T-cells, you're going to vaccinate. Now, you obviously can't vaccinate in certain organs. It's very, very difficult. And what we have found is that by vaccinating into the skin, you generate what's called the the homing, the T-cells to go around and become resident in the liver or the lungs, whatever it is. And that makes sense since the skin is the primary source of, of infections for a large number of things. The skin, the respiratory, and obviously the oral cavity. So for our vaccines to generate these seed cell armies, we have to do what's called uh, intradermal injections. We put them straight under the skin, very, very, not in the skin, literally, it's, it's 300 microns, it's just in there, and that is the highest density of dendritic cells anywhere in the body. Your skin is a complete uh, network 
of dendritic cells. In other words, it's obviously waiting for invaders to come in. So we vaccinate into the skin. Some of those cells will migrate and it's taken up into the local draining lymph nodes and then spreads out the body. So by doing dermal vaccination, you generate the right type of T cells and you generate systemic immunization and you generate T resident memory cells. Nasal immunization doesn't do any, uh, any of that. And I'm not aware of anything really very successful on that front going forward. So with our technology, therefore, it was very convenient for this way that microneedle technology uh, evolved uh, because we had a specific need for it, not because it was easy or anything else. It's just because that is the way we had to vaccinate. The Sozano situation is a it's a, a small patch. It's got about a thousand little needle tips on it, but they're actually not real needles. They're just tips. And the vaccine is simply adsorbed onto the tip of each of these needles. And then that's pushed into the skin over about the size of a, a U.S. quarter. And you're sort of you're vaccinating fairly a large surface area there. But that's with dry vaccine. Uh, and then we're looking at what we're currently using in our clinical trials are what are called microneedle ones that basically inject liquid vaccine just at the same distance under the skin. So we're developing simultaneously developing both technologies for the delivery of dry vaccine and for liquid. They have different uses. You can imagine the dry vaccine, very, very stable. You can package it up. You can have self-administration. You know it doesn't require a cold chain, doesn't require any liquid dispensing or anything else. So there's a huge advantage with the dry vaccine. And then there's also other places where you may want to vial a vaccine and do multiple doses of this. So we have looked at, very importantly, the practicality of the delivery of these type of vaccines and the technology, fortunately, is out there today. And I have to say we're discussing with other uh, microneedle companies. They all have slightly different twists, let's put it uh, that way. But yes, we took over the entire Sozano facility, all the equipment, all the IP. We're in the micropatch business, I guess, also. Okay, so given what you said about dry vaccines, it does seem that would be a technology or mode of delivery that's suited to uh, developing countries or emerging markets. How much cheaper would a vaccine from uh, Emergex be compared to what's in the market today? Well, our commercial people would never uh, say, you know, we're talking factors of 10 less. I think, for example, a commercial dose of, say, of the latest COVID vaccine is, is $150. I think you get a traveler's vaccine for yellow fever. It's two or $300. Those are stratospheric prices uh, compared to what we would be doing. But the basis of our commercial issue here is we would be selling volume sales. So if, let's just throw out a number. Let's say we sold to somebody uh, at $10 a dose and sold 100 million doses. It's a lot of money. So the, the idea here is by making it price affordable, you can uh, you can sell in bulk and in volume. We can make millions since we're doing it. This is 100% synthetic in just a chemical reactor. And we can make uh, hundreds of millions of doses just using chemistry. So our costs of goods by and large is the cost of the components that go in it. Okay, that sounds like a strong pitch. I mean, in case you were to be acquired today, what would an elevator pitch from Emergex or from you sound like? 
I do it all the time. My elevator pitch is that what are people interested in in, in terms of what came out of the COVID is, is we are basically reproducing natural immunity. We're not creating anything that you would not be created in a natural infection. And it is the way the immune system works. Now, going back, why were we able to do it? This is Immunology 101. Three things that, that happened. One was the development of microneedle technology to do dermal vaccinations. Second of all, mass spectrometry. You've got to know what to vaccinate against. So we have to know what is the signal when flu infects a cell, it produces, as you know, uh, a, a signal in the class one molecules, and that's what the T cells will attack. So you needed to know the signature. It requires very, very highly level, sophisticated mass spectrometry. As far as I know, we are either probably only the single or the only, maybe less than a handful of people anywhere in the world that can do this. Uh, we have already done about 13 or 14 viruses. Uh, we plan to work our way through. So we know the code. And then the final bit was, how do you deliver the code? And that came from my background in nanomedicine, and so we use a some cluster. We won't need to talk about it today, but it's, it's actually pretty Star Trek-y stuff um, to actually uh, deliver code to the uh, dendritic cells. Technical advances allowed us to implement natural immunity artificially. I think that's that's the easiest way to describe what we do. So 50 patents behind you and probably more ahead. When I see you, it reminds me of Robert Frost's poem, Miles to Go Before I Sleep. So what drives you to keep coming up with more innovation and just, you know, doing what you do? Well, I have to say, just from a personal basis, which is very interesting, I've had a, I'm an MD, PhD, but I've had a, a rather mixed career. Started out in, like, in inorganic biochemistry. I spent many, many years at Oxford, where we, we I basically created the field of glycobiology with my partner, R.A. Dweck. We created a whole field of biology. Glycobiology did not exist. We made up the name, published it in any reviews of biochemistry. It was the first time it, it ever appeared uh, and made up lots of new words that appeared in the Oxford Dictionary, which we always very proud of, and then went on to do a whole series of things. And my immunology background came from the fact that I was always interested in fetal maternal medicine and the immune response about in relation to the, uh, imagine the placenta and, and the child. And there, that's a very, very uh, unique and very detailed field with only very few people working. What's interesting here is this particular project actually includes everything that I have done personally in my career, all the way back to uh, inorganic biochemistry. Uh, these, these particles are basically um, bioinorganic molecules, these vaccines. The basis of the, the targeting is via carbohydrates, which passivate the surface. So there's the glycobiology, and then there's immunology. So I have to say for me personally, this is a famous thing they say in, in sciences, you should change fields and institutions about every 10 years years. I think this is a combination of each of those 10 years thrown in to create something that all of a sudden the technologies allowed us to do. And without any of these three pieces, the, mass, the advances in mass spectrometry, the delivery systems, and the microneedles, you wouldn't be able, you would not be able to do this. It would still be a textbook, this is how you treat vaccines in hypothetical uh, space. So I think 
I first said I wanted to get it into human clinical trials. We've done that. In this world of vaccines, the next level of that, of course, is uh, what's called phase two readouts. And these trials are now progressing. But it's important now is educating a lot of people on this because you can talk to a lot of uh, immunologists and virologists. They don't even have a clue that the mRNA vaccine, which was made against SARS, uh, the spike of SARS-2, was made against something that didn't even exist. So I feel I have a, a certain role now in education uh, going forward now that a lot of the, the hype of the pandemic and things is gone and there's a lot of reassessments going on of what's real and what's factual. Thanks, Thomas. We've heard some really interesting comments from you on vaccine development. And I'm sure this podcast was a masterclass on that subject for some, if not for many of our listeners. But we have to end somewhere and uh, we will have to conclude the session. It was really nice talking to you. And I hope we can see you sometime later in the future once you have some vaccines on the market as well. Thank you very, very much. But I'm hoping our vaccines will get used far before that. As you know, the the vaccine world has moved on. There's what's called pre-emergency authorizations, and then there's emergency youth authorizations. So I think as soon as most governments and regulators are seeing that, as soon as there's a critical need, you can move these things relatively fast. I'm hoping that these will be used far before market authorization in uh, situations where they critically are needed. I do hope we have some regulators also listening in. And to our listeners, we have many such interesting podcasts on platforms from Spotify to Apple Podcasts. And you could also subscribe to our sightline products like Script Intelligence and Pink Sheet. But as of now, this is me, Vibha Ravi, signing off for Sightline. See you later.